Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is my good friend, Heidi Wagner. Heidi is a pathologist assistant and the head of operations of a biobank in Toronto, Canada. Today on the show, we're going to talk about Heidi's career path and how she became involved in biobanking. And then we'll talk all about biobanking, what it is, how it works, and some of the areas of research that use biobanked tissue. I definitely learned a lot from Heidi in this episode, and I hope you do too. All right, now here's Heidi. Heidi Wagner, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been uh, it's been a long time coming. Happy to be here, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah. All right, we're going to probably spend most of the time talking about biobanking and your work in biobanking, but I wanted to start with a bit about your background. So you're originally from Canada, and um, how did you initially get interested in pathology? Sure. So um, I was uh, doing a placement with the uh, London Police Force in Ontario and realized that that uh, field of work of wanting to get into forensics through policing was not for me. Um, and I found out about the PA program offered at Wayne State um, in Michigan and transferred over in into that program. And I guess found my calling. Um, I exceeded in school and uh, in the program and really enjoyed the science aspect of it. And then from there, uh, my first job out of Wayne State was at MD Anderson Cancer Center um, in Houston, Texas. I was um, the first um, PA from a program that they had hired. And so brought my experience from my program uh, to, you know, the cancer center there and mm -hmm. uh, spent a year there. Uh, I didn't have very much involvement in biobanking at that time, mostly just surgical pathology. And then a year after being at Anderson, I was a bit homesick. And so I, I relocated to, um, had an offer at Roswell Park Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York, and uh, had an opportunity to work a four-day work week. And so I took the opportunity. It was at that time that I was introduced to biobanking. We had a, a huge um, involvement with the fellows. We were in the process of creating a biobanking guidance uh, SOP document binder uh, with Dr. Carl Morrison, who was heading up the translational research program there. And um, just, again, really loved the expanded portfolio of what I consider the front line of biobanking is the PAs. So um, getting involved in research, I started doing some publications with some of the pathologists at Roswell and um, helped to write the, the guidance manuals. And then I was there for six years and had quite an extensive experience with biobanking. I had attended a couple of the ISBER conferences and uh, really found a niche for, I guess, that I was not aware of when I was in school. And I was able to kind of bridge the research activities with my clinical training. So in that regard, I had an opportunity to 
um, go back to Anderson. And um, I was, it was a PA position that was open, um, but I had negotiated with the, the director of, of Surge Path there to head up their biobanking program. And, um, and we negotiated that position. It had never been done before. And uh, they took, they took, um, they took a risk, I guess, which actually turned out quite well. It, um, the Institutional Tissue Bank at MD Anderson was a group of three when I got there. And I, I left there with a team of 15. So we grew the program significantly. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, so when you worked in, in Buffalo, that, what year was that? Um, that was from 2017 to, sorry, 2007 to 2016. And okay, then I so went you to were, Anderson. So you were involved in biobanking all the way back in 2007 then? That's correct. That's, yeah. Okay, that's earlier than I had thought. Okay. And then while you were at uh, MD Anderson the second time, so were you in in charge of the biobank? Yes. Yep. So I had, yeah, three, three technicians and one uh, PA on my team when I arrived there. And I, I, we grew collaboratively the program to having uh, two research clinical PAs and, um, and, and 13 uh, technicians or biobanking technicians. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you tell me about what, what is a biobanking technician? What do they do? And what is their, um, like what's their education requirements? Sure. And uh, sorry, their title was a tissue procurement specialist. So um, yeah, so their training is, is in the laboratory. Um, They've got experience in uh, handling tissue and, Validating consents, data entry, dividing up the the sample, um, so the tissue handling, and that also goes to to blood processing. That's one of the skills and uh, expansions that we also offered for our staff over time is to also expand their portfolio to blood processing as well. Okay, so they're like a bachelor's degree level. Is that is that about right? Uh, that's correct. Okay. I'd like to take a couple of minutes and go through sort of the general flow of tissue procurement for biobanking, like kind of where it starts and the things you have to do to get it to, uh, you know, the place where it can be banked. Sure. So it starts obviously from surgery, right? That's correct. And um, having, uh, I would say like a, a banking protocol in place okay. at your institution mm-hmm, where you have um, the ability to consent patients for future research and the things that go into that consent document really should include uh, future use and commercialization. Um, those are important things that I've, I've learned uh, through my relationships with ISBR and the ESBB. Mm-hmm. Which we'll talk about both of them later on. Sure, sure. So from there... You, you're making sure that those patients are consented on your banking protocol, and that could be done directly in clinic, or that could be done as part of a surgical package when the patient's scheduled for surgery. Um, and then the patient goes for surgery, um, the specimen comes out uh, 
into surgical pathology as it normally would. And then anything that's not taken for clinical care would be uh, harvested and collected for research. Okay. So yeah. now this, the tissue has to be, you know, what we normally would call fresh, right? And like not formal and fixed. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. You can have, uh, so I, I would say there's two types of, of banking. There would be the prospective collections and then there would be the retrospective collections, which use either um, formal and fixed FFP blocks or uh, frozen tissue. Okay. Okay. So then how do you know what tissue to take from, from a particular specimen? Does it depend on the, the research that's going to be done or is there sort of a standard type of tissue? So from there, I, I think I was able to leverage my, um, my experience in drafting SOPs uh, when I was at Roswell um, about, you know, what, how do you harvest, where do you harvest and what size do you harvest? Um, understanding that, you know, you have solid tumors, which are obviously easier to harvest uh, grossly, but usually I try to go for um, anything greater than one centimeter. Um, but again, depending on the patient's history, all of that drives the way that you collect. So, uh, you know, you have to check what the patient's been diagnosed with, you know, if you have scans or images of what the tumor size is prior to receiving the specimen, you can correlate, you know, if it's a three centimeter tumor, you might have a little bit more flexibility in harvesting that sample. And then you might also have um, the patient is consented for multiple protocols. And so usually those protocols have priority over the banking protocol. So let's say protocol A requires 0.5 grams of tissue. So you meet that protocol first, and then you would any residual from that, you would then bank for future research. Okay. And that's, I assume that's then frozen. Is that how you're saving it for? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it, I, and each institution has a different protocol on how to, how to store that residual material. So at Anderson, you know, we had a, at a capacity of, you know, we would collect no more than 10 tumor samples and 10 uh, matching normal samples um, based on the volume of tumor or material. And that priority would be, you know, liquid nitrogen, liquid nitrogen, liquid nitrogen. The fourth sample would be an OCT and then an FFPE. And then that you would repeat that process until you capped out at 10. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about what, what are some, I don't want to say common things, but well, yeah, look, what's sort of some common research that is that uses uh, banked tissue? So let's say people want material on, oh my gosh, the, the, there's such a different variety of, of research. So uh -huh. right now I have to work with prostate research. So um, people are asking for um, blood samples and that are, are banked, that are frozen. So, okay. um, and one of the drivers that brought me to to um, the the biobank here in the position here in Toronto was um, the closed healthcare system. So, you know, when you're at like a large uh, institution like Anderson, where people come to the facility as 
like a last, almost like a last resort for treatment. You have the biobank has maybe, you know, one time point collection uh, on their sample. Whereas when you're in a closed healthcare system, you can track the patient's journey over time. And so you have longitudinal collections, let's say over the course of 10 years on a patient. And so it's a really rich biobank in, in, in the sense of having, you know, material at different time points. So let's say an investigator wants to look at um, bladder cancer and they want a collection time point at um, pre-surgery. And then one, uh, once they're given the BCG vaccine mm-hmm. and then, you know, six months after that. So they can, they can look at the, the different markers within the, either the urine or the blood. Is that often done with, um, you know, pre and post like chemotherapy or radiation therapy? Correct. Okay. With, uh, the current, uh, COVID pandemic, I imagine there's quite a bit of research being done on, on that. Uh, is that something that uh, would be biobanked as well, tissue from COVID-positive patients? Sure. So I um, was moved into, uh, received a promotion, I guess, in like the February of this year to head up the operations for UHN Biospecimen Services. And then like a week later, uh, COVID hit and mm-hmm. uh, we were tasked with setting up a COVID biobank. And so we are not collecting um, tissue. The, the risk was just too high for, for, um, for individuals to be collecting uh, fresh tissue. However, we are collecting like fluid samples. And so we are positioned in the emergency departments where we consent patients that are presenting with upper respiratory symptoms and, and collecting a time point zero for them. Um, then if they're transitioned to the ward or the ICU, we would have targeted time point collections for them as well. So we are now um, in our fourth month and we have approximately um, 250 patients consented and just over 10,000 specimens. Wow. Yeah. Now, so that was all set up from scratch. Basically there was, there was nothing. And then you, you set up this program completely. How, like, how is that done? It's, I imagine it's mostly SOPs and things like that. And Yeah. I, I, on, honestly, I think this was one of the most challenging projects of my career it, uh, because it was mostly done remotely until we could function. Oh, so yeah. working with, right. Mm-hmm. So working with, with uh, occupational health and safety, working with um, infectious control, and then um, making sure that our safety cabinets were at least a level two uh, for processing, uh, for protecting our, our individuals, or our staff, sorry. Um, and then making sure that we have enough PPE, which was a bit of a challenge, and then supplies. So tubes that we wanted to ensure um, that we are having, we could predict what investigators would be looking for down the road. So, you know, making sure that we had serum, that we had PDMCs, that we had urine, saliva, plasma. So, and then what tubes were the best to collect those for downstream analysis? 
and then running out of those tubes or not being able to access those tubes in Canada because it was sold out and, and is a, a lot of challenges. Um, but you know, we've, we're, we're functioning quite well at this time, at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you started this, uh, in, in February, you said, or early March, and how long did it take to be sort of up and running and, and start collecting samples? Um, I would say between um, the protocol submission, the REB approvals, and all of the um, safety requirements to be put in place, it took us three weeks to do that. Oh, wow. That's, that's impressive. Okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier ESBB. And I wanted to touch on that organization a little bit. Um, so, so first of all, let's let's start with what is it and how did you get involved with them? Sure. So ESBB is the European Society for Biobanking and Biopreservation. Um, one of the first um, trips that I went to or conferences that I attended uh, when I was at Anderson in the role of bio, like biobank manager is is the conference in Leipzig, Germany. And I mean, it was, I'm usually uh, used to attending conferences with a couple hundred people mm -hmm. with regards to the International Society of Repositories. But this conference, this European conference, had a, you know, five, 500 plus uh, individuals all across Europe wow. and Asia. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty awesome experience learning how um, their approach was to consenting to collections, to storing um, where their priorities were and, and just educating. I, I guess it's like when you attend the conference for a first time and you realize how big the industry is and that that's what the experience was for me. Okay. Um, had you been to Germany before? No. Mm -mm. Okay. And I mean, I know you, you're, fluent in French. How, how was your German? Is it, could you, could you get by? <laughs> well, with a name like Heidi Wagner, I was, uh, <laughs> no, I couldn't get by, which is shameful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So the immigration and the, in the Germany, uh, had a nice time with my name and my lack of German speak. <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> um, yeah. So you actually did a, a presentation at that conference too, is, is that right? Um, not that one, but I did uh, go back last year to okay. Leipzig um, for another con in ISVR conference, and I did do a presentation there. Oh, all right. One, one, one thing I wanted to find out, you mentioned a little bit, um, how are things, you know, here, here in the U.S. and Canada, it's a lot about the ethics and the consent and, and things like that. Is it the same there in Europe? Are they as concerned with those kinds of things? Or is it like, I'm trying to get at how is, how is it different there than it is here? Sure. So I think they have a very different approach to, like a lot of their biobanks are government funded. Okay. And so the buy-in is, is, you know, quite significant, um, but also that they are, the data sharing piece um, between countries is it's close and tight and streamlined. And so it's a challenge over here to, to, to be sharing outside of the European Union. 
Uh-huh. So you're saying within the European Union, they, they can share among countries much easier than, than we can do it? Like between the U.S. and Canada even? Is that, is that accurate? Um, I think between U.S. and Canada seems uh, quite fluid. Um, okay. But overseas is, is quite challenging okay. so far. I see. Understand. Okay. All right. Uh, you mentioned ISBER. Let's talk about them for a little bit. So what, first of all, what is ISBER? So ISBER is the International Society for Biorepositories. It's based out of Vancouver, and um, they have been functioning for 15-plus years. Okay. Yeah, this, this is an organization that I have heard of. All right, you said you did a presentation at their conference. Uh, can you tell me about that? Sure. So we had um, uh, two posters um, in Leipzig and is on the, on the prostate research that we've been doing and also on the business plan that we have put together for our biobank. So we've worked with a consultant um, out of Switzerland that I have met through ISBER, uh, Dan Daniel Simeon Dubach. And he helped put our, our business plan together and so that we could maintain a sustainable um, biobank. Okay. So how, how does the, the poster presentation work there? Is it, do you have to give sort of a, a live presentation or are you just kind of standing there with your poster and people can ask questions if, if they like? So they, um, a bit of both. Um, okay. So they have judges come around to the posters and ask you questions about your posters. Uh, and then, um, and then they vote for, for the best poster. Okay. What sort of, or did you get any uh, feedback about the, the business plan? Did people have comments about that? Um, I think more so on the North American side when we presented at our conference for the business plan. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's where we got the, the real... Uh, feedback and questions, um, maybe not so much on the European side. Okay. What kind of questions, just like how to, how to do it, how to put something like that into place? Or... Yeah, like our, um, the biobank here, like the McCain Geo Biobank is, is uniquely positioned um, because our director, um, so we work on a fee, a fee cost recovery model, but we also have um, injections of uh, philanthropy. So, mm. um, you know, I think that makes us quite unique in that regard. And although a bit unpredictable um, in circumstances of a pandemic where funding on, on most businesses and philanthropic support is, is diminished. And so, um, but I, I think that on the business model, the questions that that came through were, you know, how do you how do you maintain um, sustainability, and then also how do you maximize utilization of what's in your bank? So we've built, you know, strategic plans around utilization and funding. And then you you mentioned to me a little while ago you're actually doing uh, a joint conference with ISBER later this year. I imagine it would be a virtual conference. Uh, yeah. yeah. Can you tell me about that? That's with, so you're at uh, UHN in Toronto. Um, so how, how did this, how did this project come together? Sure. So 
So when I, my first year here, we put together a, a bit of a retreat and it was a bit of an informal um, biobanking get together across UHN. And we had a really good success rate and decided that the following year we would actually launch our first conference. And uh, we did uh, quite well last year, but we had over um, 100 attendees. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, people coming in from Michigan and from Buffalo and um, around Toronto, Hamilton. So uh, we had, you know, posters and roundtable discussions. It was, you know, it turned out quite well. Um, and then this year we were planning to do a conference as well in the fall, uh, as was ISBER. And I sit on several of the committees with them. And um, when I, you know, discovered that they were moving their conferences virtual, um, I think we had a, an opportunity to kind of expand our outreach and see if they'd be interested in participating in a joint conference and they accepted our proposal and we actually have our first um, conference committee meeting today oh wow okay that, that's going to be this fall that's correct yeah okay october 23rd and 24th okay and what what sort of uh what, what's going to be i mean it's probably a little early to tell but what like what's going to the format going to be? Is it be a uh, lecture style or the like more discussion group type of things, panel discussions? Do, do, you, do you know at this point? Yeah, I think, I mean, so that I think that's one of the things that we'll talk about today. Um, how do we engage the audience and um, have a variety of different um, presentations um, for for attendees. So uh, definitely I think having a panel would be uh, great. Uh, and especially now that a bit of the social distancing has uh, lightened up for the fall. Mm -hmm. um, so we would, we would do that uh, here in Toronto. Um, and then of course we'd like to um, uh, offer a, a workshop. And so we'll have those discussions with ISPR today about what that might look like. Um, and of course, just, you know, it, um, approaching topics that are relevant to the biobanking community this year, which, you know, um, are, are mostly COVID related, ethics related. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I've been I've sort of participated in a couple of virtual conferences since this all started happening. And it's, it's been interesting, the things that they've been able to do that were normally, you know, in-person only events you can do yes you can do discussions and you can do um you know vendor presentations and, and things like that and um actually there was one just just last last month that you were involved with it was a joint uh canadian and american pa uh online conference and you gave yes you gave a lecture for that uh on ethics in in biobanking i did and yeah i was actually really uh impressed with the delivery of that conference yeah me um, too yeah they did a really great job and and um you know it was it was nice to have the questions come in live um and have an opportunity to kind of address your your crowd of you know several hundred individuals um virtually so that piece was really well done and and for me 
I mean, I saw some some former classmates on there, like Belda, I haven't spoken to in about 15 years. So it mm. it it just really kind of brought me back to you know, a place where I hadn't thought about in a long time and and I really appreciated that. Yeah. How did how did you first become involved or how did they approach you to to speak at their conference? So um, they hadn't reached out to me by email to ask me if I was interested, uh, the group at UHN. Uh-huh. And they, he, Ian had reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in participating. And uh, I gladly accepted, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah. And, and then how did you decide uh, what the topic to speak on? Um, so Ian put some, forward some ideas uh, to me. And I guess I'm also... Uh, you know, once you start compiling your program together, uh, knowing that, you know, PAs need a CE credit in, in ethics. So, you know, I right. candidly accepted that uh, could be a very dry presentation, but tried to keep it as, as light as possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it was, it was very interesting. There was a lot that I, I didn't know. One of the kind of goals that I sort of come up with for this podcast is I'm trying to inspire people to uh, sort of join the field, you know, whether it's in lab or, uh, you know, as a PA, as a pathologist. And so I wanted to talk, talk a little bit about what are some of the positions in a biobank? I mean, you mentioned uh, the PA, you mentioned the tissue procurement specialist. What are some of the other roles in the biobank and how do people, if, if someone is interested, how do they get involved? So there's also, I would say there's um, the positions of lab technicians. Um, there's the positions of clinical research coordinator um, that do the consenting on okay. the front line. Um, <clears throat> and then there's a, a big component to data right so i have a large data team so um they they help out a lot and and um the experience wouldn't necessarily be data management but i i think you know people can kind of grow into that role based on an understanding of of clinical research and then um with regards to how they can kind of beef up their CV and expand their portfolio. Uh, so ISBER has recently come out with a qualification in biorepository science, and that's in conjunction with the ASCP. So uh, we helped pull that together uh, on the committee with ISBER um, and some some preparation for those that exam um so i think that would be a nice compliment to anybody looking to go into the biobanking space okay uh the people in the data management is that do you do they normally have like a background in computer science or is it like they're in laboratory science and then get involved in the computer aspect i mean like like which way does it usually go it's usually an understanding of the meta, the medical research, um, so or the clinical research, and then branch into data management. Okay, okay. And um, are there histotechs? Uh, is is that a? I mean, is that a role there? So, that- 
Yeah. So I think there are research histotechs. Um, they were not part of my umbrella of individuals. However, they do exist in the biobank and they are required for a biobank um, because we need H&Es uh, and unstained slides for research. Mm-hmm. And so that's definitely part of the, the portfolio of a biobank. Okay. It, yeah, it, ha- it can sit either under like LMP, the lab, lab medicine program, which is like a research sector for histology, or it could be a, a research histocore lab. So you've been, you've been working in biobanking since 2007. What are some of the changes that you've seen in the field uh, in that time? I think something else I noticed when I was in Europe and recently is, is the amount of patient engagement. I think that has significantly changed over, over the years. And, you know, we just formulated our governance board for the UHN Biospecimen Services. And part of that governance board, I've added a patient advocate. Okay. Because... You know, it's really those are those are your stakeholders, right? And and are part of your stakeholder team, and not including them in the process is a disservice to them. Um, so, you know, I think some of the topics that came up at one of the uh, breakout sessions when I was in Europe was actually from a patient, and you know, it's, it goes back to the consent language. What does the future use mean and the commercialization of material? And is it data only? Is it the tissue only? So those are are real concerns for patients. And that's why, you know, if I go back to the ethics presentation, uh, really stressed the importance of of the medical ethics, beneficence, non-maleficence. So, you know, the beneficence requires, you know, procedures with the intent of doing good for the patients that are involved. And, and, you know, I think those are really having autonomy and having um, a say in what's happening to their, to their material is, is, is really a change that I don't ever see going away. In fact, I think it's, they're becoming more and more educated. And I think that they're, it's important to involve them as part of the process and discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I want to just want to wrap up with with this. As far as biobanking, do you think? I mean, it seems like over the last couple, of probably decades, it's become more and more used and more important. Do you think that's going to continue? Uh, do you think there's going to be more research done with with biobanked uh, tissue in the future? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, you know the pandemic. I guess could have. You look at it like it slowed down, it slowed down a lot of operations. But I think there's, you know, as things start to open up again, the drive for research is present. And um, where I thought I was busy three months ago, I have a feeling that it's it's going to twofold. You know, as we get into the fall, fall where people just want to push research through and you know better understand the sample utilization. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think also too uh, that 
the biobanking industry is heavily involved with clinical trials. We have, uh, as of two weeks ago, launched our COBRA trial, which is, um, you know, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three study that we have introduced to uh, frontline police officers uh, across the city of Toronto and other frontline healthcare workers. Um, and we are doing a uh, in injection of the BCG vaccine uh, in hopes to reduce any symptoms of COVID. And it is um, a collection time point at baseline and then at month seven uh, with you know data collection pieces every two weeks from from the frontline healthcare workers and officers. Okay, that's the same vaccine that they use for treatment of bladder cancer, right? That's correct. Hmm. That, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't know that was that was being used for for COVID treatment as well. Yeah, and it's it's um, we're working with uh, our our P, one of our PIs, Dr. Zlata and Dr. Fleschner. Um, following a group that in Germany uh, is is running the same trial, and in the UK, so uh, we're happy to be doing it in Canada. Hmm. That's all right. That that's very interesting. Okay, Hi, Heidi, this has been this has been super interesting. I th thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, Dennis, thank you for for thinking of me and for reaching out. It's great to connect with you. Big thanks to Heidi Wagner. Now, if you want to learn more about some of the things we talked about today, go to the website and take a look at the show notes. I have links to all of the things we talked about. The website is peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And if you know someone who might be interested in a career in biobanking, please share the show with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. <music>